0: Kia ora, I'm Andrew Whiteside and today I'm talking with Mark Beery, the author of a book called A Queer Existence, The Lives of Young Gay Men in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In it, 27 gay men born after the passage of the Homosexual Law Reform Act in 1986 share their experiences of their lives. It's a very candid look at the first generation of queer men born in New Zealand who didn't face prosecution for having sex with other men. Mark, good morning, and uh, congr- congratulations on a queer existence. Quite a remarkable book.
1: Uh, thanks, thanks, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. And yes, it's a book that took uh, nearly ten years in the was nearly ten years in the making. So I started taking the photographs and doing the interviews in twenty twelve, and the last person I spoke to was at the beginning, beginning of this year, beginning of twenty twenty one. So it's been quite a quite a period of time to to get to this point.
0: That's an incredible uh, length of time. Uh, What I'm curious, first of all, is what kind of prompted you to want to do the story? Did did you have a central question that you wanted answered or what made you want to tell it?
1: I wanted to record the experiences of people, gay men or queer men, who had been born in the era post-homosexual law reform. I'd done a previous book called Men Alone, Men Together, which was about a mainly older group of gay men and their relationships. And they had mostly grown up in the pre-law reform era. And I was aware that there had been many books published about the experiences of gay men in the um, 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s. But we haven't had anything in print uh, in New Zealand uh, prior to this, about the experiences of gay or queer men who'd been born in the post-law reform era, and I thought that this was historically and um, from the point of view of social history, uh, an important thing to document. So I wanted to create this this picture, this this record, or this set of set of stories.
0: Reading the introduction and little snippets about your life, I'm assuming that we were probably born in the same year, if not in the same year, within one or two years of one another, mid-60s, I'm guessing?
1: Yeah, 65.
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh, ditto. So um, I was coming out during law reform. Uh, I was uh, 20 when the bill was introduced to, to Parliament. So it's a very uh, seminal time in my life and one that had huge resonance for me, and uh, but I have to say, when I was reading some of these stories, I felt a little bit of sadness because I felt the, the, the battles that we went through back then, even though these boys were born into a time where they were no longer, uh, any sex acts were illegal, there was still a sense of struggle for many of them, still a disconnection from their peers, from uh, maybe not their families. Some of the families were, um, were very supportive, but still the struggle. And I thought, yeah, I I can relate to that. Even though there was law reform, it was still challenging for them.
1: That's very true, and that's a comment that's been made by by others and something that I observed as I was doing these interviews. Um, I say in the introduction that this is, you know, these are 27 people that I spoke to, and someone else doing a similar project would have found presumably a very different group of people to talk to, and might have found people with different stories. But it is true nonetheless that so many of the people that I talked to still found that growing up um, they had a sense of difference, uh, that they had a sense of messages absorbed subliminally or within, from society that being gay or being queer was something different, something less than desirable. And so many of the people I spoke to still had to overcome those messages, that negative messaging, in the process of coming out and the process of saying, This is who I am and embracing their identity. So one of the things that I hope to achieve by this by having this book published is to promote the the understanding and the realisation that we still need to make need to work towards. Greater degrees of acceptance uh, for people of uh, right across the spectrum of sexuality and right across the spectrum of gender identities but this is um, still a work in progress for our society
0: and I guess what what came through I remember my own schooling where I was very much in the closet. my best friend was gay we came out to each other about I think around the age of sixteen. Uh, but still in school. But there was no opportunity for us to uh, experiment <laughs> uh, socially, sexually, or uh, flirt with our peers in the way that our straight counterparts did. Boys and girls were dating, they were going steady. And, and I, I'm guessing that for a lot of these men that you've interviewed, the same was true uh, 10 to 15 years after law reform, that these, that these kids still couldn't uh, do the the usual teenage stuff that straight counterparts did, and that has an effect.
1: That's true, and it was true. That is certainly true for some of them, um, and some some school environments were were definitely um, not conducive environments for, for queer people growing up. There were others, though, that had. Um, Peer groups, at school that were accepting and that were open, and uh, in which they could express their sexuality, and in which which they could find um, those experiences, those early early teen experiences of dating and, and getting to know people in a romantic or sexual way. So there is a spectrum in the group of people that I spoke to, and yet what you say is very true that there are still some for whom uh, those teen ex- experiences weren't. Those, those normative teen experiences weren't readily available.
0: When you were talking to these men and subsequently uh, transcribing and then writing up their interviews, have you noticed differences and similarities between our generation and this generation that you've, that you've interviewed? And, and what would those be?
1: So the, the differences, I think, would be that a large number of the people that I spoke to did come out in their interviews um, Teenage years, or immediately on leaving school and moving to a larger centre, it was reasonably common for some of the people I'd spoke, I spoke spoke to who'd grown up in provincial uh, centres or small towns to move to somewhere like Wellington to go to university, for example, and come out when they did that. So that was uh, that, that, that was a theme that came through. Nonetheless. Um, Well, and clearly because they were part of this project, the people I spoke to had come out by the time they were in their 20s, whereas my experience, I didn't come out till I was 30, and people of my generation, um, that wasn't that uncommon for people to to come out much later in life. And for the people I spoke to and met alone, met together, many of those guys had come out quite late in life. So coming out earlier on is, is one difference. The other big difference, and I don't think it's confined to queer people per se, is that the impact of um, digital media, um, social media, internet dating, dating apps, on the ways in which people uh, interacted and related and formed Um, connections, not only sexual connections but social connections as well. And I think that's indicative of this, uh, the era that we're living in. And I did speak to people for whom, uh, who described uh, what were very significant relationships, but purely online people, someone talked about their first boyfriend being uh, someone that they knew purely online who was in another country that they hadn't met face to face. So those those sorts of experiences uh, are clearly a difference.
0: So, so the similarities, what, what did you relate to um, with regard to these men?
1: The big similarity was that for almost everyone I spoke to, coming out was still a, still a life event to be negotiated. Yeah. Still for yeah. many people it was a hurdle. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking through the, through the list of people in the, in the project and there was really only one for whom um, coming out was not a thing, who just simply started... Seeing another guy and told his friends he was seeing another guy and that was that was bad. Um, for almost everyone else, there was still a point of coming out of having to say to of feeling that they had to say to friends and family that I am I am gay, I am different. It was interesting that quite a few people started out by almost softening the message by saying, maybe I'm bisexual. Right. And that was a theme that came through reasonably strongly. Uh, and people who were um, clearly really only interested in other, other guys um, would often start out by saying, oh, perhaps I'm bisexual. And that became a, a stepping stone and perhaps eased the transition to saying I'm gay or I'm queer.
0: This was one of the things that brought up that little sense of sadness. I mean, now I'm in my mid-50s and I'm quite okay with who I am. But I but I remember while I was excited and energized by law reform and fighting the battles and all of that, there was still this thing of there's one step I have to climb over before I tell you who I'm dating, that my straight counterparts and peers didn't have to do that. And it's that's a big thing. That you have to make this declaration before you can be truthful to people about something fundamental to your existence.
1: Yes, and that's something that came across in some of the interviews. Uh, I had people say to me, "You know, I wish I could just say I'm I'm seeing so and so without having to make it this this sort of sense of disclosure." And and people did bring that out in conversation with for example, with their parents. One person describes speaking to his, his mother and and the, the experience of just wanting to say, I'm, I'm just seeing um, Peter, for example, um, rather than having to make this a, a real big disclosure. And, and, and it's
0: interesting. Sorry, go on.
1: It, it, it was interesting, too, that even people whose parents and ultimately turned out to be very supportive. Still felt the sense of a hurdle to be to be crossed,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so that was that was interesting. And um, even people for whom there were a couple of people in, in the book whose parents, after the after they came out, whose parents became, in one way or another, great advocates for, in one case, for marriage equality, and in, in another case for. Um, the recognition of uh, gay people within the church. So there were parents who were very supportive, but whose there was still the perception that there was something, uh, this barrier to be crossed.
0: It, it, but coming out also affects parents. Parents have to come out as the parents of gay people too.
1: They do indeed. And it, 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 just going back to what I was saying, some some parents clearly did that and embraced it and became strong advocates for their for their children.
0: Yeah. Uh, so the book, uh, some of the stories are quite sexually explicit. Now, was that something that uh, you deliberately approached or was it just part of the organic process uh, of interviewing people that they felt they wanted to talk about that?
1: I think it was part of the organic process of interviewing people. Um, some people did describe their, their sexual relationships. I did ask people what their understanding of sex was because that was one of the things I was interested in finding out what meanings people put on on sex, whether it was something that was um, purely to be confined to an intimate relationship with someone else or whether it was something that was um, purely recreational or whether it could be a mixture of all those things and many more um, I don't think I specifically probed the details of what people did sexually, um, but some people volunteered that, that information as part of their stories.
0: And I guess it, it's an important one, isn't it? Because, A, it's fundamental uh, to being human and obviously, therefore, to being, to being gay or homosexual. Uh, but the law reform process brought up a lot of negativity Uh, lots of politicians and uh, religious people saying some downright awful things about homosexuality and around uh, sexual practices. And so I suppose it's important to be able to express quite openly uh, a positive view of sex and sexuality.
1: That was part of my thinking and part of what lay in the background that I I did want to... Be able to for for people who volunteer that to present sexuality and and sex as something that could be discussed to contribute to breaking down a lot of the taboos we've faced in society that sex is something we we keep behind closed doors, and um, so I did think it was important to be able to to speak on openly about people's experiences and also in, in um, also in favourable terms and um, there, is, there are one or two, well there's one in particular very beautiful description I think of his first sexual encounter and um, I think it's really important to have that as part of the record, as you say to counteract or counterbalance those negative messages that, that came through so, so much in the past.
0: I notice in in the introduction you re- refer to uh the truth mag- uh, truth newspaper of course which was just a vile little tabloid <laughs> back in the day yeah. and uh and so uh, you know if you look at the narratives prior to law reform and during that law reform period uh the descriptions of homosexual sex were in terms of perversion uh, of disease, of uh, disgusting behaviour. So I think, I think you're quite right. It is important that the narrative now is, well, actually, A, it's nobody's business unless they choose to discuss it, and secondly, that there is nothing wrong with any form of human sexuality as long as it's consenting, you know. That's true.
1: No, I agree. Yeah, that's, that's part of the message, I think, that I wanted to convey.
0: Mm. So HIV and AIDS, obviously, uh, was still uh, a major issue. I'm guessing... I remember one of the men was born in 1990, so when protease inhibitors came out, that was around about 1996 to 1998, around that period of time, wasn't it? So they would have been the the oldest of these men would have been teenagers, late teens when those uh when those medications were coming out, but prior to that the treatments weren't as effective. So HIV and AIDS still played a big part in their coming out and exploration of their sexuality.
1: Yes, and that's one of the things I wanted to explore and it was one of the things that I did ask specifically about because, of course, the AIDS epidemic arrived and or struck at around the same time that New Zealand was going through the whole law reform debate and process. And so I was interested to hear how for a group for a generation growing up with that thing of hiv aids a backdrop to their sexual sexuality and their sexual experiences, I was interested to hear how that had affected them and what they 'd made of it. so I did explore that uh, quite well I, I asked about it It was one of the things I asked about it
0: uh, i know from from my own experience it was a uh... It was confronting and it was scary at the time because that was, a, you know, we didn't really know much about it. We knew what the HIV virus was when I was coming out, but it, it was there was no cure back then in those in the mid eighties. And so I'm in, I'm curious to know what impact you think that HIV and AIDS, what conclusion would you make that it had on that generation that you interviewed?
1: I think it um, certainly contributed contributed to a degree of. A degree of anxiety around sex, and probably fear around sex, for some people anyway, that previous generations prior to HIV/AIDS hadn't experienced, and certainly during the gay liberation era of the seventies, there was a um, an embracing of sex and being sexual as it. As a liberatory experience, and certainly the arrival of HIV/AIDS took took the, um, the, the, the 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 joy and the freedom I think off or the edge of off that that experience. And so, for these people growing up, many of them reported a degree of anxiety around or fear around HIV/AIDS, and some of them were the recipients of negative messaging from, for example, from from parents whose first reaction on hearing that they were gay was, was fear that they'd get AIDS. On the other hand, some people seem to have approached it in quite a pragmatic way, that um, it's here uh, people embrace the, the messaging of, of safe sex and condom use, um, which, of course, prior to uh, PrEP was, really the, the way of preventing transmission. And so many, many people also just embraced it as, as, as part of the landscape and, um, and got on with, with their lives and their sexual, sexual lives um, without a great degree of, of fear. So I think there were, there were the, both of those um, types of experiences.
0: Uh, the, the final thing i really wanted to ask you about you you've spent uh 10 years delving into uh 30 men's lives 27 in the book but 30 men's lives where you've asked uh intimate questions and i know from my own experience that interviewing people is a very intimate experience it's it's a you know you, you people are opening up to you they trust you they they're sharing their stories um, and so you've you've had all this experience of uh, of talking to these men about their lives and very important parts of their lives. Um, how has that impacted on you? Has it has it changed you? Has it influenced you? Has it has it given you some perspective on your own life at all?
1: That's an interesting question. And I think what happened last year when I spent most of almost all of last year twenty twenty. Editing the interviews, and that was—I uh, was working pretty much full time on, on on editing the interviews. And during that time, and especially during the first COVID lockdown um, last uh, last autumn, I found that there were a lot of points of resonance with the experiences of the people that I'd spoken to with my own life, and it certainly hadn't been the reason that I set out to do this project but in the outworking of it I found that there were a lot of things that caused me to reflect on my own life a lot of things that resonated with my own experience and I think it helped me quite profoundly to integrate a lot of my own experience going back to a a very different time a very different experience of growing up in a very Christian environment where I didn't, because of what I believed and what I'd been taught, I didn't come out until late in life, until my 30s, or until I was 30. So it was a a, a useful thing for me to have done, and I think it contributed to my sense of who I am, a, a sense of wholeness.
0: When you consider that uh, there's that old cliche around generations, different generations, not understanding one another that's quite a beautiful place to come to isn't
1: it it is and i've got a friend who who says that he learns a lot from the younger people around him and uh, i think that's a that's a good lesson to remember that we can learn from each other and my partner has often made the comment that for most gay people growing up we don't grow up with the experience of our gay or queer elders uh, we we very much grow up hearing the stories of our peers but we don't we're not raised most 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 people aren't raised by gay parents most people aren't raised by, with gay grandparents young people don't hear young queer people don't hear the stories of their elders very much and so i think these sorts of projects where we can have one if you like one generation talking to another and we can have this sort of cross-dialogue are very, potentially, I'd like to think, very enriching and and contribute uh, across the spectrum to to people's understanding of each other.
0: Well, I appreciate the fact that you have done that. And as I said at the beginning, congratulations. And um, Mark uh, Berry, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks very much, Andrew.
0: That was Mark Beery, author of A Queer Existence. It's a fascinating book of historical significance and published by Massey University Press. Now, here's a reminder. You can find lots more content and interviews on my website, andrewwhiteside.com. And while there, you can sign up for my regular newsletters, which are full of interesting goodies. I am Andrew Whiteside. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you soon.